1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Heritage Foundation's Executive Vice President, Kim Holmes.
0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to uh, the Heritage Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, it's a real pleasure to have uh, all of you here this afternoon. I'd like especially to recognize uh, representatives of the diplomatic corps who are present today, especially uh, their Excellency the Ambassador from Belgium, Mongolia, Sri Lanka, uh, distinguished attendees from many other embassies. A warm welcome to all of you. It's a very busy week uh, for all of you, uh, mainly because of the events surrounding the United Nations uh, General Assembly meeting in New York. Uh, So thank all of you uh, for being here and taking time to be here today. I also want to recognize in his absence uh, the Heritage Foundation's founder, uh, Ed Fulner. Ed uh, has uh, long been a spirit behind Heritage's Asia work. He established the Asian Studies Center way back in 1983, uh, at a time, uh, frankly, when Asia occupied a smaller share of America's collective consciousness than it does today. Uh, Appropriately enough, Ed Fulner could not be with us here today because, yes, he's on his way to Asia. But we are here today to celebrate someone else's legacy. In fact, a good friend of Ed's and the Heritage Foundation. Every year for more than two decades, Heritage has hosted a major address on Asia policy in honor of the late B.C. Lee. B.C. Lee was the founder of the Samsung Corporation. The company endowed this series of lectures to focus the attention on American policymakers on our shared priority interests in the Asia Pacific region. And we have stayed true to that design all over these years. We've hosted some of the nation's uh, leading foreign policy figures, such as Henry Kissinger in 1995, and also Senator John McCain. And between uh, uh, Senator McCain and Henry Kissinger, we've hosted Jesse Helms, Henry Hyde, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, Hank Paulson, and Don Rumsfeld. All of them have addressed us in the name of this series. We are also glad to have the Samsung representatives joining us today to continue in this legacy. Welcome. It seems like uh, we're always talking about China these days, but you know it's actually been that way for a very long time. And we're going back and reviewing the history of the BCV lecture starting in 1995. Uh, A lot was happening even back then uh, on China issues. There was the Third Cross Straits Crisis Uh, which uh, our speaker was involved in, and you'll probably say a few words about that, that happened uh, during the Clinton administration. The same year, Congress squeezed uh, the Clinton administration into granting Taiwan's president a visit to his alma mater at Cornell. Uh, This was just the tip of the iceberg. And all the 1990s were an extraordinarily active decade on the Hill uh, regarding China. Things quieted down for a bit, but now we're right back at it. Taiwan is constantly on the legislative agenda. The Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act is pending. Uh, there was CFIUS and export control uh, last year. These were massive undertakings, of course, which had a lot to do with China. And then there's the 5G issue, and there are large-scale problems with human rights and religious liberty regarding China. So the plate is completely full over uh, how the United States should be approaching China. But the big difference between now and 20 years ago uh, is that uh, today, China is a major power. And the question of how we proceed uh, on America's uh, many interests in the Indo-Pacific region, in light of this changing situation, in light of the fact that China is now a major, a, a major power in the United States, is a question that's on a lot of people's mind. That's why we have invited Senator Dan Sullivan to be here today to help us give some answers to these questions and find a way forward. Senator Sullivan is remarkably well-suited to this task. In the Senate, representing Alaska since 2015, Senator Sullivan has already staked out leadership roles in the Armed Services Committee, as well as three other committees. He's particularly focused on military readiness, something that I can tell you that we at Heritage care a great deal about. Senator Sullivan is a colonel in the Marine Corps Reserve with a long and distinguished record of military service, and we thank you for that service. He was Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Energy and Business during the George W. Bush administration in the second term. I was in the first term, so I missed you, Senator. Sorry about that. And he has a master's in Foreign Service from Georgetown University. A long and distinguished career uh, in uh, serving this country uh, and now he's serving his country as a senator from Alaska. It's not an easy set of challenges that I've outlined here uh, today, Senator, uh, but we are very much looking forward to hearing your remarks. And so please join me in welcoming Senator Dan Sullivan from the great state of Alaska.
2: Well, thank you, Dr. Holmes, and it's great to be back at Heritage. And I also uh, want to echo very much what he mentioned about the diplomatic corps, including His Excellency the Ambassador from the Philippines, who is also uh, joining us today. And uh, I'm quite honored by that. You know, we um, we ended up uh, I ended up hosting with my Senate colleague Lisa Murkowski this summer in Alaska, um, the Ambassador and uh, Ambassadors from Korea and Vietnam. So all the other ambassadors here, uh, you have a welcome invite to join us in Alaska. You can come in the winter if you want, but a lot of people like coming in the summer. But um, we do love hosting people. And Ambassador, thank you again for coming. It was a great, great visit. We were very honored to have you and others here. Um, It is a special privilege for me to be able to take part in the annual BC Lee lecture, particularly as. Um, Dr. Holmes mentioned who has spoken here before and I want to thank the Lee family for their support in this proud tradition of addressing what are very very important issues for American foreign policy and I also want to thank the Heritage Foundation for so much of the great work that they do on so many issues it truly is an honor to be here. You know the United States has a long uh, history, very long history, in the Asia-Pacific and is recognized for decades, really centuries, that its future is intricately tied to the peaceful future of the Indo-Pacific. In fact, access to the Indo-Pacific was one of the major arguments used when debating the purchase of Alaska, my state, from the Russians in 1867. I actually have the check, a copy of the check, in my office here in the Senate Hart Office of the Treasury check of $7.2 million that we paid to the Russians for Alaska. Some of you may have seen a little story. CNN wrote uh, over August that uh, one of their editors made this brilliant statement when referencing the, the issue of uh, Greenland that, well, you know, the purchase of Alaska didn't work out so well for America. As you guys know, CNN is not really chock full of smart historians, because I think literally every historian in America would disagree with that. And all the Alaskans do, and most Americans who have visited Alaska do. But um, America's economic and security interests, whether it's you know the purchase of Alaska or other more recent activities in the Asia Pacific, have really been key, both on the security and economic side to the unprecedented era of peace and relative security that the region has secured since the end of World War II. None of this, of course, happened by accident. This peaceful era and prosperous era has been the result of a carefully woven fabric of decades of bipartisan American diplomacy, military engagement, and leadership by the United States, all of which is being challenged by China now and its economic and military rise. For over two decades, I've actually had the opportunity to view the US-China relationship through a variety of lenses. And I'm going to a lot of those experiences have really impacted the way I'm viewing the issue now. Let me just give you a quick overview of some of those experiences uh, from my perspective, because they helped shape the way I feel and view and talk about the issue. As Dr. Holmes mentioned, over 23 years ago, I was a Marine infantry officer deployed in 1996 on an amphibious task force, a large Marine Corps amphibious assault vehicle as part of the response that the United States had, including from President Clinton, two carrier battle groups uh, with the provocations that China was enacting on the eve of the presidential elections in Taiwan with missile firings and even a threatened invasion. And actually, the ship that I was on was the ship that actually ran the Taiwan Strait during the height of that crisis. So it was an experience a long time ago, but it certainly was an example of American uh, commitment and resolve to one of our allies during a heightened period of tension. Uh, I later served at the National Security Staff of the White House under uh, under Condoleezza Rice and traveled to the region a lot. Then I focused on international economic issues with cabinet officials like U.S. Trade Representative Bob Zellick. I then actually was recalled by the Marines to deploy to the Middle East for uh, about a year and a half where I was a staff officer to the now ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He was then the CENTCOM commander at the time, U.S. Uh, Army General John Abizade, and came back later to the Bush administration after my uh, active duty stint and was Secretary's uh, estate, Condoleezza Rice's Assistant Secretary, as Dr. Holmes mentioned. And I mention that because that's when Hank Paulson launched the Strategic Economic Dialogue uh, with China, which was very important. And I uh, participated in all of those as the lead uh, State Department official under what was called the SED with Secretary Paulson and others. I then went home. And this is an important element of looking at the US-China relationship, because I was a senior state official, state of Alaska official, in charge of natural resources and energy, and went over to China to try to get them interested in our market and buying exports. Alaska is a small state in terms of people, but we are quite a a powerhouse in terms of exports, natural resources, fish, minerals, and so uh, we had a lot of engagement with China at the state level, which is also important. And now as a US Senator, um, I've been what I am referring to as part of a bipartisan awakening in the federal government of the United States of the serious challenges posed by the rise of China. I was very honored uh, early, very early in my career when Senator McCain, really my first two weeks in the Senate in 2015, uh, reached out to me. And if you knew the great late Senator McCain, um, he didn't really give you a lot of choices, but he said, Dan, you care about the Asia-Pacific. Alaska's in the Asia-Pacific in many ways. You've deployed out there. I want you to work with me on Asia-Pacific issues. Travel there, meet the leaders, and, you know, Literally, in that regard, I pretty much felt like I didn't have a choice, so I said, yes, sir, I'll do it. And uh, But it was a great honor, and I did travel uh, in the region and have traveled as a senator with Senator McCain and others, including a trip to China last year that I'll talk about my first as a uh, U.S. senator. But here's the thing that's so interesting, and it really is a change. When I first arrived in the U.S. Senate in 2015, I was surprised by how few people... In the Senate, we're actually talking about uh, China. We're actually talking about the challenges. I would go down and give a speech about once a quarter on the challenges. And yet, some of my speeches were actually saying, we need to focus on this more. We need to focus. Opportunities, yes, but certainly challenges. And I thought there was not a lot of focus. I'll tell you a side story that was quite interesting on one of the speeches I gave, it was right before I was invited, as a freshman senator, I was quite honored, I'm sure Senator McCain had something to do with it, but um, to meet with a small group of senators when uh, President Xi Jinping was in uh, Washington, and I was able to meet with him. And before that speech, I had given a speech on the floor and quoted a new an author who was writing a new article, Graham Allison, called The Thucydides Trap. And of course, that's common knowledge now, but at the time it was... In a, in a, wasn't the book yet. And I had mentioned this on the speech in, on the Senate floor, and a couple of my colleagues before the meeting with President Xi said, Hey, I well, watched your speech. That was interesting. Now, what's this Thucydides trap idea? And so, anyways, we talked about it, met with the President of China, and one of the first things out of his mouth in the meeting was that one of the most important things we can be doing, in the United States China, is to avoid the Thucydides trap, which is quite interesting that he was saying that. We were saying that, and I think that's important that we have that common ground. But you can't give that speech anymore. Those speeches I used to give on the Senate floor where people need to talk about China, everybody's talking about China. And I think that's good. I think it's awakening. And I think the United States has awakened to what I believe is actually a new Cold War with China. Now, to be clear, this is not a challenge of our choosing. It is the result of conscious decisions by the leadership of the People's Republic of China to overturn key elements of the U.S.-led, rules-based international order, despite that order enabling China to emerge prosperous and strong from its so-called century of humiliation. This new Cold War is not an inevitable consequence of China's rise or our status as an established power as Professor Graham has written about. Rather, I believe it stems primarily from China's rejection of becoming a responsible stakeholder in the international system that the US has led since the end of World War II, a system, as I mentioned, from which China has benefited probably more than any other country in the world. But to recognize a new Cold War exists with China does not mean that the nature of the global challenge is similar to or identical to in any way of that posed by the Soviet Union. However, it does mean that the US and our allies need to recognize the challenge encounter it in ways that avoid major conflict without compromising our core values and interests and those of our allies. So let me talk a little bit about what I call the awakening. Ever since President Nixon initiated the opening with China, Many hoped that its political and economic system would open up as the country developed and joined the international system. Others believed that even if the Chinese Communist Party remained in control, its external behavior and relationship with the United States would not be affected. When the United States supported China's entry in the World Trade Organization, President Bill Clinton remarked that American workers, consumers, and investors would be the greatest beneficiaries. Ultimately, this has proven to be not true. Equally misguided was the hope that as China grew economically, it would liberalize politically. The expectation was that China would lower its trade barriers and follow WTO practices, including respecting intellectual property rights, promoting basic safety standards for exports, not subsidizing main uh, industries, and not subjecting imports to illegal non-tariff barriers. China did not meet most of its commitments and still hasn't. Rather, it has employed new access to Western markets to pursue large-scale technology theft, exploiting the openness of the American economy without allowing Western companies reciprocal access to its markets. I saw this up close and personal when I worked for President George W. Bush. In a meeting that I participated in with uh, with then-National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, President of the United States in the Oval Office, and Madame Wu Yi, who was the Vice Premier of China at the time. We had pressed for this meeting for the President to take this meeting. We wanted to show respect to Madame Wu Yi, who was a very important individual in the Chinese government. And at the end of the meeting, the President pressed her hard on intellectual property theft. This is 2003. I was in the meeting, as I mentioned, and uh, Madam Wu Yi to the President of the United States literally said, Mr. President, I am in charge of this. We are working on it. We are going to fix it. I saw that commitment. That was over 15 years ago. The problem of IPR theft, of course, from China is worse than it was when Madam Wu Yi made this Oval Office commitment. The US, Ra- the U.S. Trade Representative estimates that Chinese theft of American IP. Costs the U.S. economy as much as $600 billion annually. $600 billion every year. Not to mention the thousands of American jobs lost. President Obama also tried to stem these blatantly unfair, non-reciprocal trade practices. But Beijing did not honor the, quote, common understanding reached by President Obama and President Xi Jinping in 2015 on curbing cyber hacking of government and corporate data for economic gain. And broken promises extend well beyond the economic sphere. Standing next to President Obama in the Rose Garden 2015, President Xi Jinping pledged not to militarize the South China Sea. The commitment was broken within months as China undertook a massive military buildup of this key strategic lane to the consternation of literally every single country in the region. Is that an echo of me
1: here?
2: Okay. Well, after enduring this promise fatigue, what our embassy refers to, and I think it's a really good description, of promise fatigue through several administrations, I think the federal government, in a bipartisan way, is getting wise. Trade should be a win-win, but Chinese leaders appear to view it more as a zero-sum game competition. And ironically, China's predatory and non-reciprocal trade practices have brought about the much tougher new approach by the Trump administration that is now contributing to China's economic slowdown and a rethinking by global business leaders to divest out of China to lessen its influence as an international manufacturing base. Now, this current state of affairs between the United States and China was not preordained. In 2005, then Deputy Secretary of State and future World Bank President Robert Zellick encouraged China to become, quote, a responsible stakeholder in the international system, which had done so much to enable its rise and prosperity. Zellick's well-regarded speech, in essence, challenged China to change its behavior to support and promote and certainly not undermine the U.S.-led liberal economic order that had brought peace and prosperity throughout the globe after World War II, but particularly in the Asia-Pacific. And for a time, it appeared that China's leadership was serious in contemplating America's offer to be a responsible stakeholder. There are stories, and I certainly saw a few, that the Chinese Communist Party was seriously considering the zealic American offer, even contemplating many reforms that included some democratization, liberalization. Externally, I saw as a US Assistant Secretary of State, as I mentioned, traveling to China very frequently with Secretary Paulson, that in meetings we had, including with President Hu Jintao and others, that they talked about the term in these meetings of responsible stakeholder. So you know it was getting a serious look. But over time, it has become increasingly clear that the Chinese Communist Party leadership has, out, has rejected this American invitation to be a partner in bolstering the international economic order that has benefited China so much. In fact, China is now working to systematically build an illiberal sphere of influence that threatens to exclude America and erode the alliances that we have kept in the region for decades. The challenge we face today is rooted in the belief that the Communist Party of China must popularize its authoritarian model abroad to ensure China's rise as a great power under party leadership. President Xi Jinping made that clear at the 19th Party Congress, championing China's, quote, model as a new option for other countries and nations who want to speed up their development, unquote. The Chinese Communist Party view of the relationship between the individual to the state differs fundamentally from the concept in the democratic West, and its foreign policy is driven by the desire to ensure China encounters no resistance in exercising its authoritarian prerogative. And this is a very important point to always remember, and I think it's important for American policymakers to remember. The Chinese Communist Party's primary goal in domestic and foreign policy is to ensure the survival and preeminence of the party. A key driver of competition today is China's ambition to project its authoritarian model abroad. China's development under a Leninist political model serves as an inspiration for some illiberal actors and aspiring autocrats around the world. It uses its economic influence as a means of exerting political pressure. Additionally, Chinese companies and state-owned subsidized industries are not bound by anti-corruption laws that American and Western companies must adhere to. China's indifference to established standards of transparency and project implementation through its One Belt, One Road initiative results in elite deals that concede corruption abroad weaken prospects for long-term prosperity, and undermine sovereignty. China is looking to undermine democracy and human rights and the rule of law in international institutions. From pushing its norms for controlling cyberspace to silencing critics of its human rights record to pushing for enforcement of the One Belt, One, Belt, One Road Initiative at the United Nations, China is using its growing voice on the global stage to legitimize and approach at home and abroad that undermines US interests. A recent Hoover Institution study argues that China is looking to gain influence in the United States to shape attitudes and ultimately American policy towards China. And although we have not experienced the same level of political interference as our ally Australia, where politicians and donors linked to the Communist Chinese Party have tried to sway the country's policy on sensitive issues, China is clearly engaged in what the National Endowment for Democracy calls a significant, sharp power campaign to influence American policy here at home, politically. So what should our response be? Well, fortunately, the Trump administration and members of Congress on both sides of the aisle have awakened to the long-term challenge to America's national and economic security that China poses. Trump administration's more realistic approach on China, laid out in its well-received national security strategy and national defense strategy, as well as Vice President Pence's key Asia speeches, offer a clear-eyed view of Chinese ambitions and our need to counter them. At a time when there's not enough bipartisan agreement in Washington, there is broad bipartisan focus and agreement within the United States on these strategic challenges posed by China. I see this regularly with my colleagues in the US Senate. So what should we do? What should our policy be? What principles should we focus on? Well, I believe we should undertake a coordinated strategy of what I call firm strategic engagement with China by continuing to emphasize the opportunities of our shared interests with China in that country becoming a responsible stakeholder in the US-led international order, while firmly at the same time countering China's efforts to undermine that system through the establishment of their own illiberal global model, particularly where such actions threaten US strategic interests and those of our allies. Such a strategy should be based on continued engagement, not isolation with China to work to find common interests and solutions that avoid conflict. But such a strategy should also draw from elements of the successful American strategy of containment that enabled the United States to prevail over the Soviet Union during that decades-long Cold War. In particular, building on the Trump administration's national security strategy, I believe our country should address the geostrategic challenges posed by China by emphasizing five core pillars in this relationship. One, securing reciprocity in the bilateral trade relationship. Two, undertaking policies at home that will enable the United States to out-compete and out-innovate China. Three, rebuilding our military strength and capability. Four, deepening and expanding our global network of alliances, and fifth and finally, recognizing the central role that democratic values must play in countering China's global authoritarian influence. So let me talk briefly about each of these five core principles. First, the United States, and I think the Trump administration is certainly beginning to do this, must insist that the bilateral relationship with China is defined by reciprocity and fairness. For too long, the United States has accepted unfulfilled Chinese promises of greater market access, even as we have opened our economy to Chinese companies. I've seen this throughout my career in government. Chinese businesses face far fewer restrictions in establishing a US presence than American companies do in China. A demand for fairness should not undermine China's economic success, but the U.S. should flatly reject China's tr- tired argument that it even uses today, and I've heard it recently from senior Chinese officials, that because of, quote, its developing country status, it does not merit a reciprocal relationship with the United States. That is an argument I heard in China, in Beijing, and even recently, in a meeting with several US senators and the ambassador. When we talk about the lack of reciprocity across the board, the argument is, well, we're still a developing country. Quite frankly, we should all, all of us, reject that argument, which is becoming ridiculous to maintain. The Trump administration has made significant progress on this front. However, more needs to be done. I believe the time has come for a policy of general reciprocity with China. What do I mean by that? Well, on the economic sphere, we know that most American firms cannot buy, for example, a media company, a movie studio, a biotech company, an AI company in China. But right now, they can come over here and do that, for the most part. That should not be the policy. If American journalists are not allowed to freely travel in China, then why should Chinese journalists have such freedoms in our country? And another issue that's finally gotten some attention, there are over a hundred Confucius Institutes established by the Chinese Communist Party at American universities. When I was in Beijing, I was told by our ambassador that US diplomats are not even allowed on the campus of Beijing University. And yet they have a hundred here free reign at our universities. I did raise the issue, true reciprocity would mean you get to keep the Confucius Institutes here and you should allow us the ability to establish what I called James Madison Institutes of Freedom and Democracy at Chinese universities. That would be reciprocity. The Chinese officials that I spoke with said that wouldn't be reciprocity and it would be unfair because Confucius Institutes simply teach culture and language, a James Madison Institute of Freedom and Liberty and Democracy in China would be teaching propaganda. That's what they said. My view is if you think James Madison is about propaganda, you don't understand the United States of America. But if our, if our government is not allowed the same access across these kind of basic areas then I think what we need to do, and I'm looking at introducing legislation, is just say the relationship has to be reciprocal. If you can do it here and we can't do it there, then we shouldn't allow that. Why is that important? Every American can understand that because that's basic fairness. I posed this question, the important question of reciprocity to Dr. Henry Kissinger at an armed services hearing a couple years ago. And he acknowledged that to have a sustainable, great power relationship, the citizens of the country, particularly this country, need to feel that it's fair. And right now, the average American, certainly many of my constituents, don't feel that it's fair. But let me make a really important point. This focus doesn't just need to be on what I refer to as negative reciprocity. If you can't, if we can't do it in your country, You can't do it in our country. What I've been pressing the Chinese on for over a decade is also the concept of positive reciprocity. What do I mean by positive reciprocity? For decades, US companies have undertaken greenfield investments in China's manufacturing sector with American foreign direct investment, employing hundreds of thousands of Chinese workers by building factories up from the ground. I think we should welcome that kind of investment, greenfield investment, by China in the United States, employing Americans. As many of you know, this could significantly help reduce economic tensions between our two countries, just as Japan's significant greenfield investments, particularly in the auto industry in the 1980s and 1990s, helped reduce US-Japan trade tensions. Further, any trade agreement with China must be based not just on reciprocity, but contain a strict enforcement mechanism to ensure China complies. And they don't have a strong track record. U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Lighthizer has been doing a very good job of insisting on this. And it's one of the reasons we have not come to a trade deal yet. Second, as I mentioned, we need to fortify our national economic competitiveness. The United States is no stranger to global military and economic competition. If you look at our history, whether World War II or the Cold War, our comparative advantages globally remain significant, but we can and should do more to bolster these, such as prioritizing STEM education, doubling down on basic research in federal agencies like the National Science Federation and National Institutes of Health. We also need to be able to outcompete and better understand China and its culture and its history and strategies with a new generation of Americans who focus on these issues just as Russia and Soviet studies were emphasized during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Most of our most significant challenges are national debt, infrastructure, projects that take years to just permit let alone build, a dysfunctional immigration system, are self-inflicted wounds that the United States inflicts on itself. I believe the very real challenges posed by China, the disease to become more broadly apparent throughout our country, it will spur bipartisan motivation needed to address these significant but solvable American challenges. Indeed, this is already beginning to happen with regard to our military buildup which is my third point. We need to continue to invest in rebuilding US military capability. From 2010 to 2016, the Department of Defense budget was slashed by 25%. Not surprisingly, combat readiness, the combat readiness of our forces, I chair the Armed Services Subcommittee in charge of readiness, plummeted. At the same time, China undertook a massive buildup and modernization of its forces, while also making concrete moves to militarize the South China Sea. History shows, particularly with regard to America's authoritarian rivals, that American military weakness encourages authoritarian provocations globally. And my colleagues in the Senate are beginning to show a bipartisan understanding of this. The last three National Defense Authorization Act's, which have solidified the Trump administration's national defense strategy focusing on the Asia Pacific in great power competition with China, have had very, very strong bipartisan support. As a matter of fact, I think the last one that just passed this summer had over 85 senators voting for it. This national defense authorization also has a provision that I authored that's focused on a Reorientation of our forces in the Asia Pacific and the posture to look at how they should be coinciding with the national defense strategy. As we continue to engage China, a strong U.S. military provides a hedge against Beijing contemplating risky and destabilizing military actions as their military strength and capabilities continue to grow. Fourth, the recalibration of our relationship with China should be done in partnership with our allies. The cultivation and nurturing of those relationships must be a foundational pillar of any American China strategy. Our greatest strategic advantage in dealing with China is that we are an ally-rich nation with long-standing historical ties reinforced by decades of diplomatic, military, and economic cooperation based on shared values with our friends and allies in the region. By contrast, China is an ally poor country, with North Korea as its closest friend. The Trump administration's Indo-Pacific strategy recognizes the value of deepening our alliances with countries like Japan and South Korea and the Philippines and Australia, while expanding partnerships with countries like India and Vietnam. The Howdy Modi event that just occurred yesterday, some of you read about in Houston, between President Trump and Prime Minister Modi, I think is an important example of deepening that relationship between the United States and India, which could be key. But U.S. actions need to do more to bolster this element of America's strategy. And the type of alliance management that we have, not just in Asia, but in Europe as well, is critical for our overall strategy with regard to China. For example, NATO, for example, NATO allies have valuable equities to bear in Asia, including British and French freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea in defiance of China's claims to an exclusion, exclusive sphere in that international waterway which virtually no other country in the world recognizes. The unity of the West is essential in maintaining high global standards and transparency, accountability, anti-corruption, peaceful resolution of conflict, and the importance of international law, particularly in the global common areas of sea and space and cyberspace. And we must also work with our allies to manage the national security risks inherent in incorporating Chinese equipment and national telecommunications and cyber networks, such as their 5G infrastructure. No country wants to return to the Chinese imperial system of Middle Kingdom vassalage that many in Beijing see as their destiny. Strong alliances will be crucial in implementing the fifth and final pillar of the strategy that I've laid out with China. And that is the understanding that our democratic values are a critical element and comparative advantage in this new Cold War. When President Reagan laid out his vision in his famous Westminster speech before the British Parliament in 1982, in which he he launched the National Endowment for Democracy, he argued that America would win the Cold War not through simply hard power alone, but through the power of our ideals. As he reminded his audience and our close allies in Britain, Quote, any system is inherently unstable that has no peaceful means of legitimizing its leaders. China's unelected rulers, like all authoritarians, fear their own people. China has developed an Orwellian social credit score to rank its people while detaining as many as one million Chinese Uyghurs in concentration camps. Why else does the Chinese Communist Party invest so heavily in facial and gate-recognition technology to monitor their own Chinese citizens? Why, comp- why comprehensively censor the internet to preclude even the most glancing criticism of the Communist Party and its leaders? Why do China's internal security services employ more people than the People's Liberation Army, the world's largest military? President Reagan saw the power and promise of our democratic ideals as a potent, critical instrument to challenge America's global rival, then the Soviet Union, because the aspiration to freedom is universal and remains the core commonality that underpins the United States' strongest partnership with other nations, many represented here. The belief that liberty, democracy, and free markets reflect and strengthen the size of our alliance system is something that is so fundamental to the United States and our allies. Helping countries protect their sovereignty so they can be responsive to their citizens and effective partners of our nation is imperative at a time when Chinese influence risks pulling nations into a new Sinosphere hostile to American interests and our democratic ideals. As Vice President Mike Pence said at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit last November, quote, nations that empower their citizens, nurture civil society, fight corruption, and guard their sovereignty are strong homes for their people and better partners for the United States. And that is why America must recommit to helping nations protect their institutions and defend their sovereign independence. One important way to do this is through organizations such as the National Endowment for Democracy, the National Democratic Institute, and the International Republican Institute, which works with local partners around the world to strengthen democratic institutions, bolster awareness of Chinese Communist Party influence tactics, and foster transparent and accountable governance. I'm proud to say that Dan Twining, The president of the IRI, of which I chair, is here today, and he's continuing to do a great, great job. So let me conclude by predicting that the challenge I describe is going to be with us for decades. We must face it with confidence and strategic resolve. America has extraordinary advantages. Our global network of alliances, our military power and economic leadership, our innovation society, Our abundant energy supplies, where we are now the number one producer of oil, natural gas, and renewables in the world. World World-class universities, the world's most productive workforce, and a democratic value system that makes countries far more comfortable as American partners than as subservient members of a new middle kingdom led by China. As a result of the long twilight struggle with the Soviet Union, we also know what works, Maintain, maintaining peace through strength, promoting free markets and free people at home, and having the confidence in George Kennan's insight that the Chinese Communist Party, like the Soviet Communist Party, likely, quote, bears within it the seeds of its own decay. While democracies are resilient, adaptive, and self-renewing, Vulnerabilities embedded in many of China's perceived strengths are there. One-man rule creates political, acute political risks. Historical grievance can breed violent nationalism. State-directed economic growth can produce massive overcapacity and mountains of debt. The gradual snuffing out of freedom in places like Hong Kong creates spontaneous protests of tens of thousands of young people that we're seeing each weekend. Its budding military power and historical view of itself as a nation and culture superior to many others, China has alarmed its neighboring states, inspiring them to step up security cooperation with the US. Nearly half of wealthy Chinese want to immigrate, and these are the winners from China's four decades of heady growth. As we have in the, as have in the past, Americans can prevail in this geopolitical and ideological contest, but doing so will require a new level of strategic initiative, organization, and confidence in who we are and what we stand for. And this also means that we must redouble our efforts in making that case to others around the world, particularly our allies. I want to thank you again for inviting me here. And I look forward to your questions on these very, very important issues. Thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you so much for those those remarks. Extraordinarily thoughtful and, and, and insightful. I'm Walter Lohman, director of our Asian Studies Center here at Heritage. I know many of you. Uh, I think we've got time for maybe two questions. Huh? Those are a long, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, right here, right in the back. Right in the back. We have a microphone. Yes. Senator Sullivan, thank you for your speech. Uh, I'm Stacy Shi from Taiwan Central News Agency. You have mentioned before that um, you and the United States government see Taiwan as a key actor in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, And then some scholars think that Taiwan's development uh, ties with our Pacific allies are key to maintaining a free and open region, Indo-Pacific region. And as you know, we lost just two Pacific allies within a week, last week, uh, despite the U.S. government repeatedly expressing concerns over this. So what further action would you suggest the U.S. Congress or the government to take to maybe solve this problem? Thank you.
2: Well, look, I think one of the most important things with regard to Taiwan is uh, fidelity and adherence to the 1971, 1979 Taiwan's Relation Act. That was an example where the executive branch was essentially doing things that the Congress uh, didn't necessarily agree with and we put into law in a way that the president had to sign because there was a veto uh, override potential of uh, senators and members of Congress who voted for that act. That laid out the kind of statutory construct of our relationship with Taiwan. And I think that the president has uh, been focused on that. I think you saw the strong bipartisan support recently of the uh, decision of the arms sales between the United States and Taiwan, which again is consistent with the Taiwan Relations Act. But to me, I think that that staying uh, true to that and staying consistent with that can bring about the most uh, stability in the Taiwan Strait region, which is where we do not want to see uh, any kind of conflict or non-peaceful resolution of that issue, which of course is important to Taiwan and a sensitive issue for China as well.
1: Thank you for coming, Senator. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, a Japan native U.S. citizen.
0: Uh, I have a couple questions. Uh, uh, speaking of, uh, we have a, a, a new department, a space force, and, and uh, I want to know, can you comment on the uh, where we stand on the missile defense? I'm referring to North Korea. Uh, number two, uh, can Japan defend herself? Uh, again, referring to North Korea. And number three, I think um, uh, I know China is supporting North Korea in terms of uh, nuclear technology. Uh, how much are, are they uh, helping?
1: Thank uh, you. We get three, three questions there for the price of one. Uh, can we just try one more and maybe we can sum up uh, at the end? You Thank you very much.
0: So my name is Angel, and I'm with uh, Hong Kong Phoenix TV. Actually, my question is regarding
1: the data that recently has proven that the trade war is not benefiting neither China nor the United States, but benefiting countries like Vietnam and Mexico. Where do you stand in the trade war under the Trump administration? And uh, I wonder, do you think there is a better strategy towards the current relationship? Thank you very much. Sure. Some issues around Japan and Korea and the trade war. Okay.
2: Um, well, I think in terms of your first question, in terms of missile defense, that's another area when you look at what's happening in the U.S. Congress, it doesn't always make a lot of press, but there's a lot of bipartisan support for bolstering our missile defenses. Um, As most people probably know, but not all know, most of that is actually based in Alaska. The radar systems, the uh, missile fields, and what our system is, it's really a layered system. Uh, as it relates to North Korea, you have THAAD in the Korean Peninsula, you have the Aegis uh, capabilities that we have with our Japanese partners with regard to the uh, uh, naval warships, and then for the United States, we have the ground-based missile interceptor GBI system. They're integrated, and yes, so I do think that the uh, ability for us with our allies, whether in Korea or Japan to protect uh, Korea, Japan, and the United States homeland from a rogue missile threat, say from Kim Jong un, uh, is something that we have the capability to do. We exercise it a lot, but we're building it up literally as we speak. More sophisticated radars, uh, more uh, silos in Alaska. And so it's an important question because I do think, you know, part of the reason that. Uh, the North Koreans initially came to the table, a lot of people focus on the maximum pressure campaign in terms of sanctions by the United States and our allies, which I think was important. But it was also, I think, a buildup of our missile defense capabilities that um, uh, the North Koreans have been noticing and recognize that if they tried to actually shoot one or two or three missiles, uh, that none of those would be effective. So I think that that's another reason. Um, The other issue on the trade war. Yeah. Well, look, I think a lot of the, I think a lot of, you know, it's the, the, you know, the so-called trade war from my perspective is something that we, we finally woken up to. In my view, the Chinese have been conducting a trade war, as I mentioned in my speech, promise fatigue. I I have been in several meetings with senior Chinese. They're going to commit to this, commit to this, commit to this. They don't follow through on anything, and it's a frustration. So the idea that somehow we started a trade war, I think the president finally just said, enough, enough. Uh, We're going to take this a lot more seriously. So how can we end the trade war? A reciprocal trade relationship, certainly. Um, There's a lot of trade reports that we were close to a deal and that the very strict enforcement criteria that the United States demanded, uh, that at the end of the day, the Chinese leadership walked that back. That's I haven't heard that directly, but that's in all the reports. And you can see that that's been their MO, their modus operandi, for decades. You get an agreement, you get close, and then you walk it back. We weren't going to let that happen. So my view is a more reciprocal relationship, China keeping its promises that it makes and having an enforceable mechanism by which to enforce the commitments that have been made, those are the recipes for a deal. And I think our uh, government should stand firm until we get that. Now, one area where I do think we could work more is if we did this in conjunction with our allies. Every one of our long-standing allies, European, Japanese, Korean, Philippine, Canada, Mexico, they have the same challenges with the Chinese that we do, intellectual property theft, non-reciprocal trade relationship, forced technology transfer. What we should be doing is working closer with our allies, all of us together going to the Chinese saying, this is unacceptable. And if you have, that's about two thirds of the world's global GDP than the countries I just named. We did that more closely together. I think that provides a lot more leverage. Ambassador Lighthizer has this group. It's the U.S.-China, or it's the U.S.-Japan-EU working group that is focused on trying to do this, coordinating our trade strategies vis-a-vis China with those key countries. And I think we need to do that and include more countries because there's not a country that I just named that doesn't have the same challenges with the Chinese system where they don't keep their promises, and um, they undertake non reciprocal trading relationships. That, if we work together with our allies, I think that's going to provide us more leverage to get to a deal that everybody can accept.
1: Thank you. That was such a fine speech. I wish we had a lot more time to talk about it. But, well, uh, I'm sorry I went long, but we all right. about we'll this have to. That's Well, right. We'll have to pick while. it up on Twitter. We'll yeah. pick <laughs> it up on Twitter later. Right? Okay, thank, thank you very you much. Also. Please join me okay. in thanking Senator thank Sullivan. Thank you.